So, Cameron, I, I, I loved how you took your number two son to see you speak at Smashing Conference last week. It was really nice to see. Yeah, it was nice to have him there. I've done that a few times in the past. I can't do it all the time, but... So what did you get up to when you were in LA then with your son? You know, we rented a car, actually, and went up into the Santa Monica Mountains. And Oh, beautiful. Did you drive Mulholland Drive? Um, I might have. I didn't pay attention to the streets. <laughs> <laughs> we just got on the PCH, as they call it, Highway 1, I think, and... We took a few detours, well, not detours, but a few paths into the mountains. And at some point, we just kept driving until we literally came to the end of the road. And then it turned into a dirt road. And we're like, okay, we'll just park here. And we got out and hiked for a little while. And it happened to be at the crest of those mountains where the ocean was on, I guess, the western side. And then on the eastern side, it goes into Thousand Oaks in that area. And we were at the very top where you could see both sides. And it was pretty spectacular. So we had a lot of fun, I think. Nice. That definitely wasn't Mulholland Drive, but if you find yourself back in LA, a drive up Mulholland Drive is really special as well because you kind of get to see LA on one side and I think is it Pasadena on the other or um, whatever the other city is over the over the the hills, and it's a beautiful drive, uh, stunning, kind of like loads of amazing big houses, and also obviously it's the the sort of the backdrop for the the classic movie of the same name, mm, so it's right. a, it's quite a fun a fun thing to do. Uh, so that's something I do when I'm in LA quite a lot. But um, sounds like you guys had fun. I think so. I think he had a good time. It's like I said, I try to do it when I can. It it comes out to be like once every year, maybe. And uh, this is my second oldest son. He really has an interest in web design, so I think he enjoyed just being in that environment. And so for him to be able to be at the conference and then go out and he loves to hike too. So to go out and do the mountains as well, I think it was just an outstanding trip for him. So is he actually going to follow on his father's footsteps and become a web designer then? I don't know. You know, I I thought a few years ago, I thought, boy, if, if they don't all become web designers, I'll be totally crushed. Um, but at this point, it, you know, it's like whatever they want to do in life. I, I hope that I provide enough opportunities for them that if they get shown interest in that, that they can pursue it. But I don't think I have expectations that they all go into it because I don't know, at this point, maybe I just realized that our, our industry is really no different than other industries in that there are some wonderful things and there are some not so wonderful things. And, you know, I think they'll be successful in whatever they choose to do. So, you know, if, if they go on to web stuff, great. If not, I think I'll be okay at this point. So I'm really fascinated because a lot of people, a lot of kids rebel from what their parents do. So it's kind of interesting that he's not running off to join an accountancy firm or, you know, right. become, a, become a, a banker or something. He wants to get in, you know, follows his father's footsteps. So that's awesome. Well, mine's become a scientist, which is really as far away from being a web designer as you can possibly imagine. Alex is being a geologist and doing like a PhD and becoming much, much, much cleverer than me. So he ain't going to be a web designer, that's for sure. Well, you know, you have to realize at the end of the day that this is something they'll potentially do the rest of their lives, the rest of their working lives at least. And so it's got to be something they're passionate about and not something that you're passionate about and hope that they become passionate about too. You know, but I think think of of the numerous... um, you know, music artists and actors who have their children that follow in their footsteps. And so sometimes I inevitably think, well, what happens if my sons don't follow in my, my footsteps? Does that mean I'm a failure as a father? But at this point, you know, again, I, I recognize that if I just provide opportunities and they make the decision, I'll be okay with whatever they pursue. I think the best thing that we did was really just show Alex that 
he needed to work for things. You know, it, things didn't come along automatically. He was never entitled to things. And, you know, he grew up around us working in the studio. So he knows that you have to work for a living. And he's taken that work ethic um, and applied it to the stuff that he does really well. So I think that's another thing you can give your kids. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, because... You know, when I, when I look at our sons, it's, there's so much pressure nowadays too. When you see videos uh, on Facebook or YouTube of these six-year-olds doing spectacular things, whatever it might be, music, code, you name it. Inevitably you think, oh my gosh, if my, my son's, my oldest is 14 now. And I'm thinking, oh, he's a failure because he doesn't have millions of followers on YouTube doing this amazing thing, whatever it is he does. But, you know, I look at our sons and think, you know, they're pretty well-rounded in life in a, in a wide variety of areas. Not that they're highly cultured or anything like that, but we've tried to establish, I think, a good foundation for them such that no matter what they do, like you're saying, they'll have hopefully learned how to work hard, how to exhibit passion about something, how to pr- make a meaningful difference in the world. And so I think, in my mind, at this point, I care much more about that, about them being well-rounded than I do the specific trade that they end up pursuing. I mean, I think there's something really interesting here, which is kind of almost, uh, it's a sign of the maturity of our industry and, and just the age of our industry. The fact that we've now been going around for so long that it's possible that that sort of, you know, well-known figures in our industry could have sons or daughters that are also sort of following their footstep. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, kind of an anecdote. A couple of years ago, I was at South by Southwest and I somehow... I managed to blag my way into this sort of private um, recording studio. And there was this young guy playing a amazing kind of like, you know, country and Western music. And, you know, I was like, I've got no idea who this guy is, but he's super talented. And then the, you know, his dad came on and his dad played and his dad turned out to be Willie Nelson. And it was Ooh. Willie Nelson's son that was playing this gig in the Willie Nelson recording studio. And I just thought like these two people, like, you know, father and son playing together, doing something like love was amazing. And I kind of liked the idea that there was this sort of like heritage passed down from father to son. And I kind of got me thinking like, you know, the only person I've sort of really seen in that space in our industry so far is, uh, I don't know if you know a guy called Aza Raskin, uh, son of um, Jeff Raskin, who is quite a well-known uh, figure in kind of the sort of the early, uh, I guess, sort of computer and internet movement. And mm. so it's kind of fascinating, like when we get around, when we've been going for so long, that maybe, you know, your sons will be, you know, particularly um, yours, Cameron, will, you know, might be a, a, a big deal on the um, the tech scene in the same way as you were and, and you are now. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think it's fascinating that we're, we're creating a legacy and the industry has become so um, prominent that we can do that. Yeah, and I'd be totally honored if that were the case, you know, to have someone, uh, another mall, so to speak, follow in my footsteps and, and make a name for himself out there too. And I think I've just... Well, I thought Dan had already done that, Dan Mall. Oh, God, that's such a lame joke. <laughs> Are you yes, not related? Something like that. <laughs> no, I don't know if it's just me getting older at this point and, and just be. I'm turning into an old man or something where I'm like, you know what? I don't, it's not that I don't care. That's definitely not the case. It's just that I don't, I I don't have that same drive I did 10 years ago where I'm like, everybody in the world needs to do what I'm doing because it's so awesome. I think I now respect that there are many wonderful things to do in life. And especially as I have sons that are getting older, you know, it's, it's like, man, it it would be fantastic if one of them did what I'm doing, but if they don't, my heart's not going to be broken. 
But there's, I don't know, there's something, I think there's something interesting about legacy. I mean, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of really well-known agencies that we've seen recently who have like struggled and shut up shop. And, you know, there's this idea that like these people, these designers or these agencies that we grew up with and, and knew really well might not be around in 10, 20, 30 years time. And so I guess as an agency finder myself, I'm really interested around the idea of, you know, at some stage I will probably retire and I don't want clear left just to disappear. I wanted to carry on and, and have a name and a, and a life, you know, into the future. And so I guess it just kind of, yeah, opens the question of, of, you know, creating some kind of, um, longer lasting, um, uh, legacy that, that sort of goes beyond your, your immediate kind of involvement in the industry. So I think it's kind of interesting. Well, let's talk about that a little later, but I guess I should explain for anybody that can't tell the three of us handsome gentlemen apart. Because well, this is really hard. That we're a bit late this week, but I'm joined by. I think I'll describe you as a user experience professional. You're the author of some CSS book or another. I can't remember. <laughs> and you've mentioned it already. Director at Clear Left, Andy Bud. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing all right. And designer and author and founder of Authentic Jobs, Cameron Mole. This is my lame excuse for an introduction, by the way, because I don't do an introduction at the beginning. I make people guess for the first. 10 or 15 minutes and then they haven't got a clue who they're listening to and then they find out and it's a really pleasant surprise and we're it's what is it now it's it's the evening here as we record this so andy's already had several beers that is true it's just to lubricate the conversation but i've got to say cameron your son was impeccably well behaved unlike mine usually is i was pleasantly surprised by that too not that he's a, a rowdy kid but uh yeah he was just very mellow um i think he was just soaking it all in that was uh, it was good to see that well, I'm just kidding, Alex, if you're listening, because Alex is my son and he came with me to the, it was the first smashing conference in Freiburg in Germany. What was it? A couple of years ago now. And, uh, and he fitted right in because he was drinking beer and he was staying out late and hanging out with all the geeks. Um, and I just think he really enjoyed meeting people because he gave him an insight into, you know, a different part of, you know, what we kind of do. And then, of course, this last week, we've just come back from smashing conference in Freiburg, not in Freiburg, what a moron. Santa Monica. In Santa Monica, which was, ah, oh, I loved it down there. And, uh, and you, Cameron, you were the mystery speaker. Oh my gosh. I know. Although it wasn't much of a mystery, to be honest. It kept me guessing. I didn't know until the second day, so. Really? Where were you? Did you not come out to the, oh no, because Cameron wasn't at the speaker's dinner. He wasn't, no. No, there were some speakers that didn't know. There were quite a few people I didn't know. I was looking around the speakers in there going, one of these must be the mystery speaker, but I couldn't figure out who. But it, it was Cameron, which is lovely. Because like, I haven't seen Cameron for an age. So, um, uh, yeah, it's great to hang out in, in LA. I mean, I guess I kind of bumped into you a little bit at kind of Brooklyn Beta, but you always like running through. So you didn't get a yeah, chance to hang out. So it was, it was delightful. What do you think about that whole mystery speaker thing? Do you, add, do you think it adds a, an element of fun or not? Well, I have my thoughts about it. Andy, what do you think? I think it's probably more interesting than the um, the mystery theme. Oh, God, yeah. Let's talk about <laughs> that in a minute. But no, I mean, the mystery theme was good fun as well. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I guess I guess it's a little bit different. Um, you know, I don't know what um, I don't know what the attendees think. I don't know whether you know there's a, a huge amount of excitement about who the mystery speaker is or or not but i don't know it's a it's a quirk it's a nice idea and i think vitaly tries to create an experience and he tries to differentiate um smashing comp from other events so you know i thought it's a it's a it's a cute kind of um you know a cute spin so yeah i think it's interesting 
I was the I was the mystery speaker at the first one in Freiburg a couple of years ago, and I honestly thought I thought God, after all this build up, it's like who is the mystery speaker? Because I was there doing a workshop, so I was at the conference anyway. It wasn't like you, Cameron, where you would you know you're kind of just kind of hanging around until you spoke. I was doing a workshop for like the first day, and then I was really worried. I thought I'd get to the point where they went, and the mystery speaker is. And then there'd be like this huge kind of deflated sound of anticlimax when it was a NASA. It's Andy Clark. And I, oh. and I was really worried that I wasn't going to live up to expectations. Oh, yeah. I, that's exactly how I felt. I mean, going into this, I came back and told Suzanne, I'm not sure I'll do that kind of thing again because it just made, it created so much pressure on me the morning of, the day before, thinking, oh, man, these people are going to be let down. And I even showed in my presentation several tweets that were guessing that it would be Tom Hanks. You know, we were in Hollywood area. There were references from the speakers just for fun about Forrest Gump. And I'm, and I'm reading these tweets thinking, oh, it might be Tom Hanks tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, my heavens, what a letdown this will be when I stand on stage and get up there. You know, to, to Vitaly's credit, he's a, he's a very fun, genuine guy. And I think for him, this is just part of his character, his playful character. That was my first time being at a Smashing Conference and really seeing him perform so to speak on stage i've interacted in person with him but he gets up there and he's just very down to earth he connects immediately with people and so for him to do something like a mystery speaker i think that just adds to the playfulness of the conference and so i actually liked it i thought it was a different twist on things it was only until i saw i started reading the tweets where people were expecting someone much bigger much um, more celebrated than i where I, I became really nervous about things but i don't know i thought it was a nice change of pace nobody's bigger and more celebrated than you me old mate not even close <laughs> i totally agree with your sentiment um you know it was he's i've not been to a smashing comp before i had a really great time i thought it was a fantastic host i thought it was a little bit of fun um weirdly ironically i don't know if you know this cameron i was actually supposed to be the mystery speaker the moment i agreed to be a mystery speaker somebody tweeted that i was going to be speaking at smashing conf and completely blew the mystery so they uh. had to find another mystery speaker or or, or or build more mystery so yeah so um i i'm glad that you did it because that as you say is a lot of pressure to um to to live up to so yeah i'm glad it was you and not me i took your flag for you you alluded to it earlier on but Smashing Vitaly gave the speakers this challenge because, oh God, because in Forrest Gump in the film, he runs to the end of Santa Monica Pier. Vitaly asked everybody that was speaking to somehow include some subtle or not so subtle Forrest Gump reference in the talks. And, uh, I mean, we've seen people do this kind of thing before. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's fun. I think I don't, I don't mind that kind of challenge, to be honest, as long as it doesn't become tedious for the audience. I know it, it was a bit of fun. It can be a little bit of pressure, I guess, on the speakers to figure out how to, to, to put the thing in. And I guess one of the tricky things is you need to make it subtle that people don't just immediately get the joke. Cause like you say, if people get the, the reference in the second or the third talk, then suddenly it just becomes a hammer that you just keep hitting the audiences, you know, right. over the head with. I think if it takes them a whole like two days to figure it out, or if many people didn't realize that was going on to the end, then it can be kind of like a fun reveal. On the other hand, you want to make sure that the audience don't feel that somehow there's some kind of in joke that they're not being party to. So I think it's a, I think it's a careful balance, but it, you know, I think it kind of worked. Um, I think everyone had a bit of fun. I think people were quite creative with how they, um, 
they they wove it into the storyline. So yeah, interesting. I don't think we'll be doing it anytime soon at Deconstruct, but um, I'm glad that Vitaly has fun, you know, in that way with his event. So yeah, more power to him. Well, do you know, that whole challenge thing, the Forrest Gump thing, and the fact that I thought the Smashingkov was really friendly, kind of family atmosphere. You know, it just reminded me of that first at media conference that you, Andy, and I were at, um, and that we spoke about, uh, we spoke at 10 years ago. It's 10 years ago this year in 2005 yeah, yeah. that we did I know, this. Can, I feel old. Can, can you believe, has it really been that long? Yeah. And that was the first, I mean, that wasn't just the first at media. That was the first web conference in the UK. In Europe. It, it, possibly in Europe, yeah. Um, I mean, that was a big deal. It was it was after we all went to South by Southwest in 2005, had an amazing time and came back and were buzzing, overflowing with excitement that we'd met all of our heroes and wanted to do something in the UK. And, and Patrick, God bless him, kind of like, you know, you know, put the idea out there and started organising this event and we all descended. And it was the first time that the um, the UK web community had a had a place to come together. And then I think a month or two after that, Deconstruct happened and a month or two after that, Future of Web Design happened. And now you look at it and there's hundreds of events going on. But yeah, in the early days, it was a real pioneering and, and gutsy move. So I think it was a bit later than that, actually, because I don't think Future of started until about 2007. And you, it, you no, announced... No, it, it, it didn't. It started in 2005. Really? Um, yeah, Ryan Carson came and stayed on my sofa to come to Deconstruct. I remember you announcing Deconstruct at an app media, and it wasn't the first one. It was like 2006. I'm convinced. No, no. So Deconstruct, Deconstruct was definitely 2005. It was sort of like... Um, August time in 2005, so a little bit earlier than it was now. Um, Ryan came down, he stayed on my floor because I kind of knew him through, I can't remember what the, um, he had a community, like Flash community um, that he was managing and he loved the idea of doing a conference and very, very quickly afterwards he put together um, future of web apps. Maybe it was, maybe it was early 2006, but it was definitely, it was like the third, officially the third conference on in the UK after mine and then after Patrick's. So really, really pioneering stuff. I'm hacking the URL on the clear left on the, the deconstruct website because you do this beautiful thing where there's always the year as a subdomain. Mm. And oh my God, you're right. 2005 in November. Wow. My, I've got a memory like a sieve. You probably don't know the backstory and probably nobody does, but originally me and Patrick were going to do the conference together. Um, so we got talking to John Allsop um, about the conference that they run over in um, Australia. And John put me and Patrick in touch and we were originally going to organise a conference uh, at the same time. But it turned out that I wanted to do one in Brighton. Patrick wanted to do one in London. His was more commercial. Mine was a little bit more community focused at the time. And for various reasons, it just didn't feel like a good match. So we ended up kind of doing our own thing very amicably. Um, but yeah, at one stage, you know, we would have, we would have been kind of business partners in the conference world. So, and, and there was only literally like, you know, a, a couple of months difference between when, when they started and when, when deconstructed. So yeah, kind of really interesting, humble beginnings. That's actually pre clear left, isn't it? Mm-mm. Were you at Clear Left or did you, had you started Clear Left then? No, no, no. So um, we announced, me and Jeremy, um, our first ever speaking gig was at South by Southwest in March in 2005. Um, 
At the end of that talk, we announced Clearleft. We then rushed home to actually set Clearleft up. I think like we've got a couple of anniversaries. So one of them is announcing it in March. One of them is, I think we actually incorporated the company in May. And then we, you know, and then Rich came on board, I think in September, October, full time. So he was one of the, 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 the initial founders, but he had a full time job at Multimap. And really one of the first things we did was set up Deconstruct. So, you know, we had one or two clients and Deconstruct happened, oh, maybe it's in November, I think. Deconstruct happened in November, I think it was. And yeah, so we were like three, three months or four months into, into running our little agency. There were just the three of us. And yeah, this opportunity came about to run this conference and we did it so yeah really really formative i don't think you were at that first app media cameron were you no i think 2006 i used to really enjoy those they had a really good atmosphere you know i look back fondly at those years and and there are days where i'm i'm just amazed that all of us started in that period you know it, it, it really feels like a high school reunion every time we go to one of these conferences and I'm just blown away that I associate myself with the two of you and so many other people. And a lot of our roots go back to some of those very first conferences, the South Bys and the App Medias and so forth. It's just amazing, not only to see how far we've come, but to to have those relationships today and to see people go from, um, you know, not having any family to having kids or being completely on their own to being now the creative director at major organization. It's just, I mean, it's just been amazing. I mean, there, there are days where I'm just blown away by what I get to do every day and the people I know. Well, I've been thinking about this 10 year anniversary quite a lot because I think milestones like this and, oh God, it's my birthday this year. Well, it's always my birthday every year, but <laughs> this year it's a milestone because, you know, I'll be <clears throat> 50. And, um, you know, I just think, just think that they're kind of good points to take stock. And it is, it's fascinating to see the different paths that people have taken over the last 10 years or so. So Andy Cameron, here's an idea I have, like um, they've been brewing for a while. I'm going to run it past you, see what you think, run it past the audience members. So about a, a few weeks ago, before I went off on my last set of trips to to go to Smashing Conf, I set up a, a class of 2005 South by Southwest Facebook group, which I invited a whole bunch of people to. Pretty sure I invited you and Cameron to, if I didn't, you know, I'll, I'll rectify that. Um, and it was just so fun listening to all these people that, you know, like I say, when we met them, they were, they were just like excited kind of like 20 year olds that, that had no profile that had, you know, that hadn't gone off and done all these amazing things. And we just like cool people. And it kind of got me thinking that it would be really fun to organize, you know, in the same way as I kind of said, class of 05 to organize like a 10 year reunion. And I've been toying with the idea of like maybe suggesting to people, well, hey, let's just descend on Austin later in the year, maybe around an event apart that's happening there in October, November. Let's just grab some hotels, just spend a weekend, hang out, chat, see how everyone's, you know, um, careers have progressed and, and yeah, just have a good time. So I don't know what you guys think. I don't know whether there'd be an interest in folks just going and, and doing a 10 year reunion, but I'd be up for it if other people were. I'd be up for it. Absolutely. Wow. We should make it happen then. I did something unusual last week, which was at the conference, because I stayed a couple of extra days in Santa Monica. And instead of, you know, working out on Muscle Beach, which is, you know, it's what I normally do, obviously, when I'm there. <laughs> how can you not find body of a man like me? I decided instead to spend the day indoors. And I sat in on Andy's creative workshop facilitation workshop. And I have to admit, that really freaked me out. <laughs> Why? Why? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it was lovely. I really appreciate you coming. It was really great to see you sort of in the audience and mucking in and doing all the stuff that the workshop is. But I don't know. It's like having somebody you know um, in a really small audience kind of sets the pressure up. Having someone as smart and experienced as you also adds extra pressure. So yeah, it kind of, it kind of sort of, yeah, it made me a little bit nervous. I mean, I think, I, I think the, the workshop went well. Um, and it sounded like you enjoyed it and the, the, the rest of the team enjoyed it. But yeah, I think having those experiences, like a weird, a weird thing, like I, you know, I run another conference called UX London. And a, a couple of years ago, we had Don Norman come and speak. And Don Norman sat in a workshop, uh, one of my um, other speakers organised. It was all around kind of sketching. And just the idea of having this like god of design, this sort of guru that's you know, written so many books and uh, and you know, you know knows it all, sitting in your workshop and the, the kind of the ever th- present threat of him coming up and saying like what you're talking about is bullshit and you don't know anything. Kind of like, you know, he didn't. He was lovely and he was charming and he got on with everybody. And I think one of the... Um, the, the attendees in his group actually took his sketch and asked him to sign it and took it away with him, um, which is kind of like super geeky fandom. But that threat is just kind of like, you know, of having really smart people in the room is, is always, is always, you know, a bit nerve wracking. Well, here's a confession and I haven't told you this, but I nearly left after the first break and not, <gasps> not because I wasn't enjoying the workshop or because the content wasn't good or you weren't good. I, the reason I nearly left was, and this is honestly, people are going to wonder why I'm even on this bloody podcast. I was completely freaked out. We started to do that first exercise where, and we'll, we'll explain to the audience in a minute what, what the workshop was about and, um, mm-hmm. and everything else. But we got into, we divided into groups and it was groups of four. You'd cleverly organize people into groups of four without them really having to, you know, to, to do anything. And the first, if the first activity was to, and we'll talk about this in a minute, to design the cover of a magazine f- that might be talking about your product or your service or whatever it would be from mm-hmm. a year's time. It was the, the, co- the cover story activity. Yeah. And the lady that was facilitating the group, I can't remember her name, Rachel, um, basically said, right, well, let, let's spend 10 minutes out of our 20 um, just writing some things down ourselves and then... Uh, we'll get together and we'll kind of, you know, see what everybody's got. And I literally sat there for the first 15 minutes and I couldn't write anything down. I was mm-hmm. absolutely freaked out. I mean, so freaked out that I was, I was thinking, this isn't for me and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to leave. Wow. What, why were you freaked out? Because I've never been in a situation where I've, I've had to do that before. You know, I've done loads of things. I've facilitated a few things, not like yours, but, you know, with clients and we've done brainstorming sessions or whatever, but to actually have to sit there and write out on a piece of paper, on a post-it note, you know, the tagline for a magazine or, you know, a quote for something. I was, I didn't know where to start. I was completely terrified, absolutely terrified. And it really gave me a sense of what it must be like for clients who are not experienced in, you know, working in a creative process, you know, you, you say to them, do this activity and write things on post-it notes and it must freak people out because it bloody well did me. Oh, absolutely. And and I think that's the, the, the purpose of the workshop was to teach people a very small number of what we call design games. And one of the great things about design games, if they're, if they're, um, run right and obviously the difficulty that you found yourself in the situation was that you were being facilitated by someone that was 
also learning this stuff so they've never facilitated before but one of the great things about facilitating design games is that there is a structure there is a set of rules and usually it makes it easier for people to to play along because if you just you know it's a blank canvas problem if you just ask someone to stare at a blank canvas and come up with unstructured ideas it's really tough if you take people through a process and a series of steps and there's there's a there's a structure to it, then often it's easier and they kind of unlock a creativity that they often don't know they had. So that's one of the great things of doing these kind of like active workshops is they can eke out of people a level of um, knowledge and interaction that they obviously often never thought they would be able to do. And I have so many people when we do this for clients that come out of it going, wow, that was really fun. That was really creative. I never thought I was a creative person before. And, you know, everyone's got a level of creativity and creativity doesn't mean that you have to be a great sketcher or a great designer. It just could be that you've got ideas that are that in the usual course of your day are pushed down by the system rather than bubbled up. And if you can find ways of bubbling these up and putting them on the wall and socialising them and sharing them with people, people feel empowered. So I'm sorry that you had that kind of like disempowered experience, but hopefully by the end of the workshop, you realise how these tools could be used to empower and and enlighten and kind of motivate kind of clients because i think it's a really really useful tool yeah and I, I was surprised at my own reaction really it felt like being put in a completely kind of alien situation and you know not knowing where you were i felt lost and to be honest a little bit kind of panicky because you know i didn't really know what i was doing and i didn't know you know what to do next and it took until probably midway through that first exercise where some things had kind of gone up on the board and I could then sort of actually not not facilitate because Rachel was doing that but contribute in a slightly different way where I would almost be kind of editing things and organizing things I suppose like a facilitator would Um, Mm. and then I found it incredibly valuable I mean and the whole process of it throughout all the exercises that we did during the day I thought was brilliant Wow, oh, that's really nice to hear. That's really good to hear. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. No, I did enjoy it. And, you know, I think as far as the audience is concerned, what, what you got us to do, you talked us through the kind of the concepts of um, these design games and you gave us a bunch of examples for, what, 90 minutes or something. Yeah. And then we actually got into uh, some of this kind of group stuff. And the first... The first thing that you said was right. The the task that we're that we're taking on is to design an app for visitors to LA. I think that was the brief, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Out of town visitors. What I found interesting about this process was that if you would say to somebody, right, what would you imagine would be in a, a travel app for people that were visiting LA? They'd all probably trot out the same kind of stuff, you know, Yelp mm. reviews or, you know, best coffee shops or whatever. And my little group came up with something completely different, I think, and completely unexpected anyway, the, at the end than I think we would have thought that would have come up at the beginning because we followed through this kind of process. Mm. And it almost, our concept became this idea that you weren't given a list of places to go and you could just choose where the best coffee shop was. The idea was, was that this app was like something whispering secrets in your ear and you could, you know, if you were standing in a certain location, it would tell you where to go next. Um, And when you got there, you might even find out what it was. You know, maybe sometimes you didn't even know what it was. You know, you just walk around the corner and there would be a photo opportunity or mm. something like that. And we came out of it at the end with a design for something completely different than we went in. I thought that was excellent. 
I'm going to use this to death now. And that's good. I mean, and and interestingly, I mean, I I thought I thought it both in some regards challenged some of the things you were saying in your talk, but also at the same time kind of agreed with them because a lot of these techniques that we're using and we're applying to the interaction design world actually come from the world of advertising. You know, things like the design the box game and the cover story game are games which have been used for 20, 30 years in the advertising industry. And it's exactly so the just for the the listeners, um, one of the sort of the main premise, I think, stop me if you're wrong, if I'm wrong, of your talk was that we have as a digital design industry become very formulaic and very staid and um, uh, the designs that we're producing lack a certain level of originality or inspiration because we're focusing very much on this procedural usability led mindset. Pretty much. And- in some, in some, you know, regards, I agree. But also, I think really good user experience design, um, and really good user experience designers, that's not what they want. User experience design is not just creating a, a boring, dull, but usable product. It's about trying to create some kind of unique, um, story, some kind of unique experience, um, with the users, some kind of unique connection. And there are all these sort of plethora of tools that we can use that can break people outside of their rigid thinking and help them explore the, the, the un, unexplored or un, you know, hidden areas. And so I'm really glad that you had that experience that's, that you've seen that, um, you know, like using some common, cause these are quite common user experience, um, activities. They can actually be a, um, uh, a sort of empower people to be more creative rather than sort of take some of their creativity away because of process. I think what you're, what you've seen, unfortunately, and, and this is really common, so it's not surprising that you've seen it, is there are a lot of just really mediocre UX designers out there. There's a lot of really mediocre designers out there. And I think a lot of mid-level, mid-career or early career designers, they fixate on um, really simple uh, heuristics or really simple patterns. Um, you know, you know, when we started, like, you know, uh, it was sort of, um, Nielsen Norman, you know, in the three click rule, you should never create a website that's deeper than three clicks. We know that's rubbish now, but at the time people would like latch onto these ideas. And I think at the, at the moment we're seeing very junior designers latch onto ideas about usability, which many of the senior practitioners have already thrown away, have already chucked out, you know, with the, with the bathwater and have moved on. And so I think your, I honestly think that your criticism or critique isn't necessarily about the field of UX design. It's just, it's just bad design in general. It's unthinking design. That, no, I think you're absolutely right. And that was my, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily just purely a dig at UX because I do talk about, um, other design processes like, you know, and, and, and concepts like atomic design that I think when people rely on those things in the same way that when they rely on something horrible like bootstrap, that they just end oh God, up with yeah. something completely. Don't, don't even get me started with bootstrap. Completely soulless. Have you ever run design workshops, Cameron? <laughs> I stopped doing those years ago. Um, I think after doing my last eight hour workshop, I was just, I would not only was I physically spent, but I realized I'm just not the the right kind of teacher for an eight hour workshop. So I haven't done workshops since. A ninety minute workshop probably could do that, but uh, eight hours no. Well, my my trick with this workshop and and Andy will sort of confirm is actually there was about ninety minutes of talking, but the rest of the workshop was basically the group 
doing and me sort of wandering around and checking in so in some regards it wasn't that tiring although even even just kind of you know being absorbed and being um present first you know eight hours it's kind of it is quite it is quite hardcore even if I wasn't talking for the whole eight hours kind of I did at the end of the workshop just go home and collapse in a heap in the hotel room so it it is it is tough but I've done that you know we've done with clients like one and two day workshops and they're so exhausting, but they're so productive as well. Like you can get out of a, a client in two days more than they've been able to do themselves in a year or two. And I've seen that. I've seen the sense of people coming out feeling like big, difficult, messy problems that they've been un- unable to solve. They've been able to crack in a really short time. So it's ama- it's amazingly sort of you know powerful and, and productive if used in the right way. But yeah, if used in a bad way, and this was my message, meetings could be boring um you know tedious tiresome unproductive activities and i think as designers our job is to try and not just design interfaces but design the processes that we use in order to get the most out of our projects and out of our clients and so i think you know workshop facilitation is a design skill it's a very meta design skill but going in and understanding what your clients need and providing the service that gets them to where they need to be is is incredibly important did you used to do this cameron when you were dealing with clients you know i'm, I'm thinking of the two instances where that would have happened when i was freelancing and then when i was working in-house at a large nonprofit. um when i was freelancing and i knew this i made the mistake of really never meeting in person with any of my clients sure there's the internet and all of that but you know i, I think there's still a lot to be said of, of meeting in person with those that you are working for um, whether to kick off a project or doing it halfway or whatever, uh, it just goes so far for establishing a great relationships or being able to sit down, like you said, Andy, and just working through some very difficult problems over the course of a day or two. Um, and then when I was in-house, um, you know, I, I didn't really ever create those opportunities and, and maybe that was to a fault. Um, but I, I, I still think it does take the right kind of person. You know, Andy, speaking to you, Andy, bud, you're sitting, I didn't get to go to your, your workshop. I think it was in the air when you were doing your workshop. Um, I'm fascinated just listening to you talk and describe what you had done. I'm getting excited, you know, just listening to the kinds of things that may have taken place that day. And you are very much the kind of person who could pull that off effectively. I'm not sure I'm that kind of person. And I'm not sure I could listen to someone like myself for eight hours. You, I could probably do that or interact with other people in a workshop led by you for eight hours. But if it was me up there, I'd probably either bore myself to death or, or I don't know. I'm just, I still think I'm just not the right kind of person for that. Well, you can't see me because we're doing audio now, but I'm blushing at the moment so, <laughs> so much. That's very, very kind of you. There was one thing I just want to, I just want to talk about to listeners, which I actually used in a conversation with a client that we're going to start working with in a couple of weeks. It's only a small job, very small client, small e-commerce store. So, you know, nothing clear left scale. But um, I have my doubts about this particular client. I think they're going to, let me say, how can I say this diplomatically? I think they're going to require careful handling. One of the things I suggested today was to uh, one of the first things that we would do when we start kicking off in a couple of weeks was to do a project pre-mortem which is what I learned from you last week at this workshop. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me as if to say, yeah, we know what you're doing. Explain to the listeners what a pre-mortem is. 
there's a lot of sort of studies around um, that show that we're really, really bad at um, coming up with positive outcomes, but we're really good at coming up with negative outcomes. So if you kind of do like a random brainstorm, um, just because we're critical people and actually as, as, as humans, and particularly the more senior you get, um, our day jobs tend to be more about finding fault in things rather than sort of finding new stuff. So um, actually, it's a technique of effectively saying to people, um, this project has failed. This project has failed in a spectacular way. Um, and we want you to list all of the reasons in advance. And this is in advance of the project. We want you to imagine all the ways that this could have failed and list them out. And so, um, first of all, this opens up the opportunity to be negative because usually at the start, there's this thing called the um, estimation bias. We're really bad at kind of when we're actually, you know, thinking at the start of a project, we assume that it's all going to go well. And we're really bad about thinking what the, the negative things are going to happen in that context. And so we kind of budget to um, think of all the positive stuff and not the negative stuff. And so by flipping that around and going to people, what well, all the negative things are going to happen, you start bubbling up this big list of things. And that list is really important because it can it can give you an idea of the culture of the organization. It can help you if you're working on a big project to create what often is called a risk log, like a list of all the things that could go wrong. Um, if you discuss these pol- possibilities up front, you can also figure out how ways to mitigate this stuff. And it just gives the client an idea and understanding that you're there to help prevent those problems from happening. So there's a whole bunch of good stuff that, that can come out of doing something like a, a pre-mortem. Um, the converse is the, the thing you talked about, which is the, the cover story, which is the opposite, which is basically you saying in a year's time, this project is launched and it's amazing and everyone's talking about it and it's on the cover of Time magazine. And if your product gets on the cover of Time magazine or The Guardian or what have you, what are the things they're going to be saying about it? And again, what that does is it kind of puts a flag in the sand and it says, this is the kind of product that we want to build. This is where we're aiming for. And the pre-mortem is, this is what we're trying to avoid. And in concert, when you do the two together, it can actually create... um a really good path between those two endpoints that you can figure out, well, how can we, how can we veer towards the positive outcome and veer away from the negative outcome? And just having kind of like said those things out loud about what people's fears are, um, it can be incredibly powerful. And so you do it, I mean, you can do it with all kinds of companies from small to large, from a single, um, owner to like a huge team of people. And But when you do it with a huge team of people, it's amazing because all of this internal politics comes out and all of these people's, you know, distrust of IT or concerns around marketing or what have you will come, come spilling out. And then that gives you, the designer, um, uh, uh, an insight into who you need to go to speak to to make sure these, you know, these things don't happen and you get the various people on board, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great tool. I love, I love the pre-mortem and I love the, the sort of cover story stuff as well. Andrew, are you charging for this show? Because you guys are shelling out some some invaluable stuff. I mean, seriously, I'm sitting here thinking, man, these are great ideas. I haven't thought of these things before. And uh, I'm fascinated. You know, when you talk about a pre-mortem, my initial reaction is, boy, that's a really pessimistic way to approach a project. Um, but then on the flip side, it's like, well, why not get all those on the table to begin with and recognize that there are challenges that you're going to face with this project rather than being completely optimistic about it. Um, you know, doing it within the right framework where it's not griping and complaining. I don't know how it's done properly. I'm just guessing. Um, but you know, that's, that, that tends to make sense to me. And, and I, I, I like that approach as you describe it. 
I mean, it's weird. It does sound a little bit negative, but actually they can be really fun. Like I say, people love to to kind of start putting sticky notes down around well, how, how this you know project might be derailed. Obviously, if that's all you did, it would be a very negative um, sort of client meeting. So you do need to temper that with lots of really positive stuff around setting direction, setting guidelines and goals and vision and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, you need to be, you know, you need to use this stuff as a kind of part of a, a balanced diet. But but it is it is good. It's very, very, very useful. Well, I'll put some links to a few games that you tweeted out. Uh, there's a site called gamestorming.com. And I'll put a few links to a few uh, games that they've talked about on that website. I'll put it in the show notes. Another useful one is the the retrospective wiki. If you do agile development at all or agile design, the agile um, community love design games. And they've created all of these different design games for doing retrospectives. And retrospectives, if you're unaware of what they are, is basically at the end of every sprint, the whole team gets together and tries to figure out what didn't work and how they can improve it in the next sprint. And a sprint is usually like a two or four week period. So there are all these techniques, um, dozens and dozens and dozens of them design games that, 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 that sort of fast moving teams will use to figure out what's not working and how to improve it. So I reckon, I recommend that, um, uh, kind of resource as well. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes and there's a book that you recommended, which again, I'll put a link to in the show notes, which is called Game Storming, a playbook for innovators, rule breakers and change makers, which is the one that I ordered. So yep. that's now in the office. I need to sit down and, and read that. But I, th- the other good, the other good book is a, there's a whole bunch of books by a guy called David Sibbett from Grove Partners. Um, and he has a whole bunch of graphic facilitation techniques for teams, for CEOs. Um, so I definitely recommend your listeners to kind of look at the, the David Sibbett stuff as well. Right. Well, while we're on the subject of pimping books, um, <laughs> I've got a book. I came home today and there's a book arrived from Amazon, which I've been waiting for for a few weeks because it's a second edition of Copywriting, Successful Writing for Design, Advertising and Marketing by Mark Shaw. And this book looks amazing and I cannot wait to sit and read this. And do you actually get time to read books? Because I, I used to love reading and I used to love like consuming not only sort of fiction books and, and, and factual books, but all the sort of books out there around web, like, you know, web design and UX and whatever. But I've just found that I just don't have time to kind of keep up. There's so many more books coming out than I'm actually able to read. And I've just got a pile sort of piling up. I've actually been thinking of like, you know, trying to justify like a week's reading holiday, like, a, you know, a work holiday where I just go away and try and like, you know, dip into to all of this stuff. Because, you know, I find myself and I'm sure you guys do as well, just, you know, finding increasingly getting out of touch with um, what's going on in the industry and, and what sort of, you know, um, what new techniques are happening and, and new ways of thinking and stuff. So I don't know if you guys, you've got any techniques for how I can sort of keep on top of this stuff. No, I find it really hard to find the time. In fact, it's only been recently that I've actually just made time and thought, right, I'm not going to actually work at the weekend. I don't mind spending a Saturday afternoon, you know, flicking through some books. But, you know, as as for kind of keeping in touch with what's going on in the industry, forget it. You know, you just can't. It used to be that you could read every CSS article that anybody ever wrote. And, it, you know, you would know exactly where the state of a particular CSS technique was or whatever. These days, forget it. You know, if you need something, then man, you just have to Google it. You know, it's it's kind of it's it's impossible to keep in touch with uh, with with all the tech stuff now. 
Andrew, what turned you on to that book? I am fascinated by moving our business. In fact, we're, we're doing this more and more, moving our business away from being facilitators of web dis- of websites and concentrating much more on the message, you know, much more on marketing and advertising. So we're doing a hell of a lot more copywriting with clients. We're doing a lot more art direction of uh, photo shoots and, you know, general art direction of, of web content. And we're doing a hell of a lot more branding. And that's the stuff that interests me. So I want to learn as much about it as I can. We we hired a, a great content strategist called Ellen um, a few months ago. It was a sort of a big decision for us because we've not had that sort of um, function in the company before. But it was really, we just worked with so many companies that the content is a massive problem. That so we're designing this sort of infrastructure. We're designing this sort of um, uh, kind of place for the content to sit. But the organizations haven't really had the time or the resources to consider what it will be, how it will be delivered, who will be producing it, what tempo, what volume it will be produced at. And so um, we, we hired um, a friend of ours who's been in the content space for a really long time. And almost immediately, she's been been sort of gobbled up by all of the, the clients we have because, you know, the, 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 her skills and her experience is just so valuable. So um, absolutely, I think that the content side of things is a, is a big part um, of the mix and something really to sort of focus on. So I think you're doing the right thing. Has this been something that you've been spotting a difference on on authentic jobs? Have there been kind of more content-related jobs going onto the site? I wouldn't say anything unusual. Um, I understand what the two of you are, are describing, and I, and for the most part, I agree with that. Um, but we haven't seen necessarily a big change in the in the jobs being posted. I'm 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 curious to see if this folds into what we typically label as a UX designer. If now that individual now has to to carry this load of copywriting on top of everything else, we seem to. It seems as the years go by, we lump more and more into what a UX designer actually is. Um, I mean, I think traditionally a lot of UX designers have been um, uh, sort of left having to deal with two things. One of it is microcopy. So, um, you know, filling in all the little kind of um, pieces of kind of like page furniture, copy, you know, page furniture on the, the wireframes of the prototypes they're building because nobody in the organization is is sort of owning that. And so I think a lot of UX designers have got quite good at writing microcopy, but a lot of them would rather that that wasn't something they were lumbered with. And I think the other thing is a lot of UX designers end up looking at doing, like looking at the content types on the site and, and coming up with plans about how much content should be in the various kind of modules or widgets or however you want to kind of break the, the, the sort of the designs up. But, um, and also a lot of, uh, the work that content strategies do have a big overlap with information architecture. So typical content strategy approaches is to kind of do content audits and look at all the different bits of content on the site and figure out who owns it, whether it's up to date, whether it's out of date. And one of the things that we tend to find when we're doing that kind of stuff is you work with a, an organization like, in, uh, a, a university. They might have like 10,000 pages, but actually only 1,000 of them are kind of viewed regularly. And there might be two or 3,000 of them that have, haven't been touched in the last year, that haven't been uploaded or even visited because websites end up just being these dumping grounds, you know, don't have anywhere to put it, stick it on the web. We're about to start working with a client in the next couple of weeks or so. It came to us because they thought that they needed, a, well, they need a website. 
to where to, to sell this particular product. And I think that they thought that they were just going to hire somebody that would literally just facilitate this e-commerce store. And actually, there's nothing interesting to me in that whatsoever. And actually, I think that they're not selling dog food at all. They're selling something else. But they haven't figured out what that something else is yet. Because the dogs don't buy the food. You know, they haven't figured it out. And it, in, it's much more interesting for me to think about content and message and what is it that you're actually selling when you're selling this product. That's the kind of stuff that fascinates me, which, again, it goes back to the advertising talk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of it is, well, first of all, then you're right, they're not selling dog food. They're probably selling a lifestyle or they're probably selling a story around why their dog food is any better than everyone's dog food. Um, and a big part of that is the copy and the content. Um, and then you get into the kind of difficult thing is there's the initial content that's there on launch, but obviously most websites, they want to be having constantly refreshed content. So then you've got to figure out, well, what is this content? Is it going to be around keeping your dog healthy? Is it going to be around talking to other dog users to find out what they do with their dogs? Is it going to be around looking at dog breeds? And so you only have to build up this ecosystem of all the different kinds of content you need to produce on the site to keep this site alive. So when people come back, they don't see that the last thing you talked about happened like a year ago and the site's dead. People want to come to a site that is is living. Um, and yeah, that takes a, that's a fun job and that's a really exciting job and it takes some, um, it takes skill and, and experience. So, um, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is a really important part of the, the, the kind of web designers toolbox. And it's definitely the, the area that we want to be spending more of our time doing because to be honest, actually facilitating building, developing websites, you know, didn't get into the game to do that kind of thing. So, I hope that it's going to, you know, I hope it's going to work out for us. Cameron, you've, you've done a, a pivot as well, haven't you, since you went freelance? I mean, you're doing authentic jobs, what, full time now? Yeah, I have been for the last five years or so. God, has it been that long? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's been good. I mean, it's, it's, I enjoy it. It's very different from freelancing. It's uh, different from even in-house, in, although I'd categorize my work as being an in-house kind of person. But, you know, I spend a lot of time strategizing where the business needs to go, how to, uh, what the tone of the site is and things like that. And so, I don't know, it's been, it's been a fun challenge the past five years. This whole in-house thing has become a bit of a conversation, though, I think, hasn't it, over the last, well, certainly over about the last year and a half, I've been aware of just quite how much uh, talent in-house companies are sucking in from agencies, um, and we've seen it. We've always seen people go and work, you know, in-house. I remember, God, almost 10 years ago, Andy, everybody thought that Yahoo was going to be the place to go. Do you remember? And it was for a while. I mean, in the UK, Yahoo had maybe 20 or 30 of the best designers, developers, like in the country, you know, they, you know, it was the creme de la creme, but then that, you know, that blows up and it disappears. And then another company will come around. I think at the moment in London, the place that is hiring all the amazing people isn't a startup. It's probably GDS, government digital services. The number of amazingly smart people I know that have been through GDS at one stage or the other is, is ridiculous. And before that, it was the BBC. And I'm sure before that, there was somewhere else that was kind of like this feeder ground. So yeah, it goes in cycles. Recently, I mean, we've obviously seen people going and moving in-house, but we've also seen entire teams get sucked in. I mean, Adaptive Path got acquired. I hate that word. I really, really hate that word. Why do you hate that word? Because it's, I mean, okay, so they, you know, they got acquired, if you like, you know, they shut down their business, they went and took jobs. 
They took jobs at Capital One. It's like T. Hannah Lacks that closed down and went to, you know, got acquired by Facebook. No, they didn't. They just went to work for Facebook. You know, it's why do you have to dress it up in something which is, you know, grander than it than it actually is? Yeah, you know, they just took jobs. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I guess the, the the opposite is a lot of people would say some of these companies sold out, which I guess is also true. They, you know, they sold their stake in the company for a, a you know a cash windfall. So it's kind of interesting that the language we use is often incredibly positive or incredibly negative, rather than neutral. Because I think actually, you know, there, there's a there's a, a plus and a minus on on both of those sides. So. I don't blame anybody for taking a high-paid job in-house or, or anywhere else. I mean, I think it's absolutely fine. I just don't know why we have to dress it up in some terms that are, you know. I think it is this, there's a kind of like a bit of a, a kind of capitalistic sort of Silicon Valley attitude here, which is that a lot, I think a lot of people think that the end goal of any venture has to be cashing out somehow, that the only way of success is to sell the thing, make a load of money and move on. You know, I hate to say this, Cameron, but I think this is a bit of more of an American attitude. Um, and when I look at the UK, I think this is one of the reasons why the startup culture maybe isn't quite as strong. We haven't got quite as many successful startups because there's a tendency towards lifestyle businesses. There's a tendency toward building something that has longevity, but not explosive growth. And that's, you know, that's, again, that's not a value judgment as well. You know, um, a lot of companies here are just, you know, are, are making nice profit, but they're never going to be listed on the stock exchange and their founders are never going to be, you know, multimillionaires. Um, so I just, it's just a different way of doing business. I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's any surprise that a lot of the companies that have hit these headlines are US based companies. And I think there are a lot fewer companies, um, in the UK, um, or Europe that have kind of taken that route. I think it's just a cultural difference about like what, you know, what you want to create and whether it is your, your business is a vehicle to get a load of money to do the thing you really want to do or whether your business is the thing in and of itself, whether you love building the business. I mean, I'd like, you know, I'm happy to say that I love working at Clear Left. I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, so I don't want to sell because if, if I sold Clear Left or if we all decided to sell Clear Left, I wouldn't have a clue what to do. I'd, I'd you know, be back to basics. So I, you know, I love doing the company thing, but if you've been doing it 10 years and maybe it's been a tough 10 years and, you know, business is up and down and you see a lot of your friends who are now multimillionaires because they've gone to work at Facebook or Twitter or sold their companies, I can definitely see why the desire is there to say, sod it, you know, it's time to cash out and, 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 you know, live the good life. And I'm sure, I think one of my friends in San Francisco sort of said it's like retiring. You sell your company and go to work for Google or Facebook when you want to retire because, they, they look after you. It's like a pension plan. You get a nice salary. You get, you know, you get fed every day. You get your laundry done. You know, you get driven to... It's like a retirement know. home. It is a retirement. It's a retirement home for like the aged designers. <laughs> oh dear, that's you and me, mate. Somebody can just bring me milky tea several times a day. Now, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong in in taking a job. And I've often thought, certainly over the last couple of years when business has been, you know, maybe not going quite as well as I would have liked it to have gone. You know, I think it would be great to, you know, take on a nice kind of senior level creative director role somewhere. I I, I can see myself doing that at some point. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, I mean, it's just, it's different challenges, isn't it? It's, you know, there's a very, it's a very different thing from running a company um, of a certain size, you know, whether it's five people or 50 people to going and being part of a much bigger thing. 
And going and being part of that much bigger thing means that a lot of the stuff that you might not like doing in your company, you don't have to do. You know, as a founder, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. You know, you've got to do everything from um, menial stuff like taking out the trash and, and changing the water bottles when they get empty in the office water cooler, all the way through to like having kind of like big business discussions and doing accountancy stuff and all this kind of stuff. And if you're, if you don't enjoy that, and if your goal really is to just focus on, um, the design stuff that you love to do, you can probably do that much better through the vehicle of another company than you can running your own thing. So, you know, I think it's horses for courses. There's no right way to do it. We're all individuals and we all get to do... Is authentic jobs a lifestyle business? In what regard? You know, would you grow it? I mean, I think there's, what, is there one or two of you now? Yeah, so we're still tiny. I mean, there's myself, there's Adam, he's up in North Carolina. Um, and then Miles has been doing work for us on the side for eight years now. Um, and we'll bring on contractors from time to time, but I mean, that's it. And, and so for us, we've almost intentionally kept the company small because I think to a degree it is, it is a lifestyle business. We enjoy doing what we do. Um, you know, we've, we've entertained the idea before of taking on investment funding and maybe at some point we would, and that would allow us to grow, I think in ways that would then shift to a company that's looking to be acquired or things like that. But, you know, that's, that's never really been the goal with authentic jobs specifically to be acquired. Andy, you're right. I mean, there is a mentality here in the U S where it is about grow quickly and be acquired. And, you know, that's the goal of every startup, or at least sometimes it feels like that authentic jobs specifically. That's really never been the goal. Um, I'm, I'm always open to that idea and, and we'll see if that changes in the future, but you know, we, I'm, I'm working on a side project right now where that is kind of the goal. This is an after hours thing where we know we want to build it quickly and get it out there and hopefully get acquired at some point and sell it off or something like that. And so I think it, it, it depends on the project. It, it depends on the business, but I, I do have to remind myself how much I've been able to do over not just the past five years running full, authentic jobs full time, but the 10 years it's been in existence. And those first five were on the side. You know, I look back and, and me personally, the people we've served and even my family have benefited enormously from authentic jobs. And so if it were to disappear tomorrow, I'd, I'd have plenty to be grateful for. Not disappear as in be acquired, but disappear as in shut down. You know, I've just had a terrific time the past 10 years running authentic jobs and we've gone up and down and I've learned so much from it that for me, it, it very much is a lifestyle thing uh, while I still remain open to acquisitions, maybe at some point in the future. No, I'm, I, I've, I've really enjoyed running it. Well, I had a couple of years where business wasn't quite so great. And I was talking to Paul Boag about this because, you know, we, 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 we swap war stories every now and again and he was talking about how he his experience of the industry at the time and he was telling me some kind of anecdotes of, of, of a bunch of other people and that reassured me that maybe our industry or particularly a little corner of the industry was having uh, you know having a tougher time than normal and I thought oh god thank god for that because I thought it was only me this was kind of I don't know a year or, or more ago then Peter Mayholtz who was one of the founders, I think, at Adaptive Path? Yep, one of the seven founders. One of the seven, including Veen and yep. uh, Dan Saffer and I think a bunch of others. Actually, I don't, th I don't think Daff was, Dan was an original, um, uh, Dan Saffer was an original founder. He was a very early um, employee. But yeah, there's loads of them. There's so many, when you actually look at the alumni of, 
uh, of Adaptive Path. They've, they've, they've had so many great people working with them or founding them. Yeah, it's a, it's a great team. Peter wrote uh, this article. It's back October last year. San Francisco design agencies feeling the squeeze. He was talking about Dan Saffer, who I know used, he worked at Adaptive Path for a while, and he started up Smart Design SF. And basically, Dan was shutting it down. And Adaptive Path, obviously, uh, they've been acquired by Capital One. And what Peter was saying in this article was a client, I've got the quote here, a client's willingness to buy design from agencies is decreasing and Project budgets have been shrinking, and the prevailing theory is that this is happening because companies are building in-house teams, and that's where their design budgets are going, whereas in the past, a company might spend 20% on design budget internally and 80% externally. That's now swapped. And there's a whole bunch of other articles that came out around about the same time. Greg Hoy wrote something about the, the troubles that they were having at, uh, at Happy Cog. Uh, there was another article I found. I put links to all of these in the in the show notes. There was one by Tobias van Schneider. I don't know whether you saw this one, Andy. I didn't know. The, he said here the reason why great talent is moving into more product focused environments is not because is because most designers or engineers don't get me started on the word engineers wants to work on meaningful projects. Um, agencies are now tasked to find their own voice, build their own brand, and craft their own vision. There's always been a, a lack of vision in most digital agencies because what all they offered was their craft. And basically, he's talking about how the fact that people are just moving towards products and the agency is dead. In fact, the article's called, you know, the agency is dead, long live the agency. And there's a bunch of these articles that all came around about the same time. Even Boag wrote this four web design trends for 2005 last year for creative block and he said many companies have decided that it's unwise to rely on an outside supplier for business critical operations so instead they're building internal teams to take on that role it's strategically wise but also provides significant cost savings over the longer term and yeah there's there's paul at the time and me and you andy all running agencies and i'm thinking actually is this something that we have to worry about no is it a san francisco thing yeah, I mean, I, I know it's an interesting analysis. I think there's some truth hidden within a lot of that, but I think a lot of it is is bullshit, to be honest. Um, so I think, like, you know, digging into some of the specific examples, Smart Design were a product, largely a product design agency. They made physical products for companies, um, you know, and actually, you know, they did really, really good work. But the market for making physical products, being an agency to make physical products, often I, I think is a relatively small market. At the same time as they closed San Francisco, they boosted or even opened up maybe their offices in London. So I don't think it was a case of the industries in trouble. I think it's just they realised that their market had kind of shifted and the kind of people that they were trying to sell to were probably less in the West Coast um, and and more in in Europe and, and London. And they have various other offices all over the place. I think Adaptive Path, um, you know, they've been around for a really long time, you know, 12, 13 years. A lot of their founders have moved on. I can totally understand why um, the remaining founder, Jesse, might have wanted to kind of have a, a change in in, in um, lifestyle or approach. But also, more importantly, I don't think that was a an indication that um, agencies are, are, are bad or doomed. I think it was a sign that, that these large companies realised the importance and the value and the learning locked in the these agencies that they were valuing them so high you know they must have made a really good offer to these to adaptive path to say come internally and work with us so i think that's actually a good thing rather than a bad thing i don't think it's a sign that agencies are doomed 
agencies are doomed if they kind of you know completely disappear without a trace being bought i think is is not a bad thing um i think there's truth in the fact that more and more organizations are realizing that um digital is a key part of their offering and they need to build up their internal capabilities and capacities um but they need help you know a lot of the work that we do at clear left is working with companies now that have internal teams and working with them to extend their capabilities, to give them, teach them new skills, to give them a certain level of leadership that maybe they're lacking because a lot of teams find it difficult to hire really, really senior people. Um, and, uh, and provide them with, um, guidance on how to kind of, you know, effectively deliver and continuously deliver stuff because this is one of the things that agencies are good at. Agencies are great at delivering you know, a whole range of different products for a whole range of different clients um, every month, two months, three months on a, on a really good cycle. Whereas a lot of organizations, even with in-house teams, you know, will spend a year or 18 months doing the same thing that an agency might spend three or four months. So I think there's a lot of stuff that in-house teams can learn from agencies. And I think there's a lot of stuff that agencies can learn from in-house teams. And there'll always be a mixing of two. You know, clearly I've always had people that have worked with us for five or six years and got itchy feet and thought, you know, I've done and I've learned everything I can learn by doing short little engagements. I want to go and work for a company for longer. And they'll go and they'll work for Twitter or, you know, Guardian or the BBC or whoever for a year or two. And they'll learn a whole bunch of new skills about what it's like working in-house. And then they'll switch tack again. Um, so I think it's part of the natural order. Um, and for every agency that's been sold, I see dozens more coming around that are awesome. Um, I think the fact that these agencies are, 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 are being sold after 10 years rather than two is an indication that there's longevity there. And yeah, you know, I, I think the industry has had a few wobbles and I think individual organizations have had wobbles. Um, you know, we had a tough start to the year last year for various reasons, but you know, um, I think these things happen. And, um, you know, I don't think it's anything to be sort of scared about. And I think the, the idea that agencies are, are, are disappearing is, is wrong. And actually, I think the, the quote that you said around, um, uh, people are going into in-house positions because they want to have more meaningful projects. I would say the opposite, you know, I would, I would, I would say if you've gone to work at Google and you've been working on optimizing this little tiny part of the Google engine, maybe your job has been making AdWords that much more seductive for the last three or four years. That sounds like the, you know, it's probably a well paid job and it probably makes Google a hell of money, but it sounds like the most dull way to spend your time and a lot of the people i know that work in-house at large companies large startups particularly large tech companies their day-to-day work is pretty dull whereas if you look at the work that a lot of great agencies do they're they're helping charities which are never going to do at startup usually they're helping cultural sector museums they're doing work for local councils they're you know they're doing this massive amount of work which is often really really positive and actually having a much bigger impact than coming up with a new social network for dog walkers or, you know, coming up with the 15th version of, um, Tinder, um, that's, you know, that's almost exactly the same, but there's one slight difference. So I see a lot of the work that happens in the startup world as, as not meaningful. I see a lot of it is the opposite of meaningful. I think a lot of it is quite shallow and, and facile and, and actually quite disturbing. I really like 
the fact. I mean, I, one, of, one of the things that I dislike about our business is that, you know, we tend to work on quite a lot, well, not quite a lot of projects, but we work on more projects per year than I would like. And I would like longer time to be able to get deeper into something. But I do like the variety and I like the flexibility and the difference in creative challenges that, you know, different clients bring. And I can't imagine being in a position where I was working on the one thing all the time. I mean, do you not miss that, Cameron? Do you not miss when you were freelance dealing with lots of different creative challenges the whole time? Yeah, I think there's a truth to what's been said here. And that is, you know, if you look at Authentic Jobs today, it looks like we haven't touched the site in a year and a half, even though we do have a substantial redesign on the way. And part of that is because we've got two full-time people working on all of the administration of running the business. We're doing the customer support and the bug fixes and so on and so forth. And so, you know, if you look at the website today, we haven't produced anything new or substantial on Authentic Jobs proper for quite some time. And, um, and, And there are days where that wears on you and where you feel like you're answering support emails, which no doubt can be enjoyable. But it feels like you know, that that is the extent of our job some days when we come into work versus being able to start a new approach, a new design for a charity or or what have you. There's still plenty of variety with Authentic Jobs that keeps me happily entertained. But, you know, I I think sometimes, Andy, you were saying working in-house and and working on all of this minutiae, even though you might get paid well for it, that can be taxing. You, You don't have the variety sometimes that you might get freelancing or as an agency. And another thing is, I guess, you know, when you not, if you work for kind of a small little, um, kind of sort of, uh, agile organization like yours, but if you work in a big monolith, you've got to deal with so much politics. And this is one of the reasons why things slow down is not only that there's the day to day kind of business as usual stuff, but you've got to fight for every single thing that often in an agency or in a startup, comes for granted you know fighting to have the project run agile rather than waterfall fighting to be able to do usability testing fighting to be able to pick a particular kind of um prototyping tool and this you know this constant fight is fun for the first six months of the fun year the first year but after a while a lot of people flee because they're trying to do good work inside a culture inside an organization that doesn't value design and this is really difficult and we know we know friends that have left very large startups a number of years ago now who left because design wasn't valued and that's changing but it's not changing anywhere near as fast as it should do and there are plenty of organizations where it's actually quite you know it can be quite sort of soul destroying for designers that just want to get on and do great stuff and they're finding that they're having to butt against you know, obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And I think, you know, good agencies give them a certain level of freedom and a certain speed. Because again, like, I think there's something like if you're working on a project for, you know, three months or six months, you can run really, really fast. If you've been there for a year or two, you get bogged down, even with external agencies. Like you get, you know, we've been working on a number of projects which are lasting a year plus. And suddenly you feel that you're getting institutionalized and you're starting to think like the internal team. And that's the point where you, it's time to say, okay, look, we're done here. We can't offer you any more value. And we've done that with one of our clients. They wanted to keep working with us. And we were like, look, you know, we need to step away because we're starting to think about the problem in the same way that you guys are. And that's not good. That's not healthy. You need to get new blood in to think about these things differently because we understand 
all of your challenges so well that we're second guessing and preempting what we should or shouldn't do. And, 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 you know, you know, that's, yeah, that, that's not good. Where does the line between designer or design facilitator and consultant where do we draw that line? Because I'm going into more and more companies and I'm working with in-house teams. And, you know, they like that. I'm about to start a project in a month or so where I'm going to be spending quite a lot of time down in London. I'll be at the clients like three days a week um, for, you know, six to eight weeks, whatever the thing takes. As well as actually doing work, you know, I'm going to be consulting with them. I'm bringing something into the team that they don't have and I'm going to be teaching them some stuff, etc. Um and I was talking to uh, a friend of mine the other day and he said, well, you know, that's great, but you need to up your rates because that's actually consulting and consultants get paid a hell of a lot more than web designers do. So <laughs> I thought, oh, that's an interesting point. Should I kind of like, you know, sh- should I think about doing this thing differently? Um, I mean, my, you know, I think there's a big discussion around the, the meaning and value in names, but I think generally a consultant advises clients on a route, a designer or a practitioner acts on that advice and actually produces some kind of tangible outcome. And a facilitator helps um, the teams like produce that outcome by nudging in the right direction. So there's a real overlap in those kind of skills. But one is one is getting other people to do it. One is telling other people advice on how they should do it. And one is actually doing it. And I think if you want to move up the value chain, you need to go from the doing to the facilitating and or consulting and i think if you do that you can you can charge more have you ever thought about doing that cameron using your experience and and selling it on to other people i have and even in the context of authentic jobs we've had we've entertained ideas about uh, having us consult with our customers in terms of uh recruiting and, and hiring and things like that but uh I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm I'm kind of happy where I'm at right now, and so I have I really haven't entertained a whole lot of other ideas about what I should be doing or what it could be doing with my time. You know, I think I'm 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 happy where I'm at. I mean, Andy, there is a, there's a next level for you there, which is I think above consultant, which is um, actually coming on board for startups as an advisor. And sure, as an advisor, you probably won't make any direct money. But what is quite common is as a, as a design advisor, as an advisor for a startup, you might take a small equity share of, you know, let's say 2%. And 2% of nothing, if the company doesn't go anywhere, is obviously nothing. But imagine if you had advised some of the big successful companies, you know, like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, when they're in their early days, you'd be a multimillionaire now. So I think there is a there's a um, an opportunity for more senior people in our industry who have a little bit of um, a blanket in terms of their their client work that they've got income coming in to be willing to offer some of their advice, um, not in return of a salary, but in return of a a cut in equity in, in the company. And I'm seeing quite a lot of people do this and I'm seeing quite a lot of people do that and then take the money they've made and become angel investors and, and adding their advice in that way. So actually investing in companies, either it's with its time and experience or whether it's with actual cash. So there's another thing you could consider. Well, it's not a million miles away from a conversation I was having with, again, with Paul Boag. Um, he sounds, he's, he's like my conscience or something, Paul. He Thanks. is, he's your guru. He is, he's, he is. He's my go-to he, guy. He's all our gurus, really, though, isn't he? 
He's a lovely fella. And he was talking about, he's been doing a lot with mentorship recently since he left uh, Headscape. He's been doing a lot more kind of mentorship with uh, with clients as, and, and with other designers too, and with startups, I think. So yeah, these things are all swilling around my head like a like a bucket of stuff. Anyway, that sounded very ineloquent, didn't it? But, you know, it's late in the evening. And, I, and yeah, I haven't had... How many beers have you had? I'm on my second uh, golden rod. Well, the least said about that, the better. But no, all of these things are kind of rattling around my head. And uh, it's interesting. Yeah, we talked about it earlier on in terms of this 10-year anniversary since we kind of really all got started. Not got started doing what we were doing, but, you know, got started on this kind of um, elevated thing, some, some people might want to say. So it's a good time, I think, to take stock and, you know, just think about where we're going to be. I think part of it, to be completely honest, I think part of it is simply a cycle of the industry. You know, we see this every five years or so. Right now we're seeing maybe a shift from agencies to in-house. I won't be surprised if in 2020 it's all, you know, all the talk is about freelancing and external agencies and, and needing to breathe new life into your organization and so forth. So... You know, part of it is just going with the flow. If that's where things are trending, and I'm not saying they are, then that's fine. You know, we, we go with the flow, and in a few years, we'll we'll take a new approach, and, and that'll be fine, too. It is interesting that we've seen over the course of Authentic Jobs that in the early days, many of the listings were freelance listings, and very traditional freelance listings, meaning you would come on as a pinch hitter, as we say here in the U.S., for just a few months on a project and then you're on to something else. We see very few freelance listings now. And when we see those, they're actually like full-time. They, they're labeled as freelance, but it's like come work on site as a full-time freelancer. You're not salaried. You just get you know a full-time uh, fee basically. And so it's, it has been interesting to see that trend shift where that at least with us and maybe similar boards, um, you know, the, the desire for a very traditional freelancer just really isn't there as much as it once was. We should wrap it up. We've been talking for 90 minutes and not a single Forrest Gump reference. <laughs> not one. Few. Nobody said I got a pee. Was that a, is that a Forrest Gump reference? Yeah, that was the bit that I kind of did at Smashing oh, Cold. Oh, I see. Yeah, the, yeah, the smashing of the yeah, because it's where he it drinks fifteen Dr Peppers. You remember <laughs> the thing? Well, I've got a pee. Thanks, everyone, for for joining me on a Thursday evening to talk about all this kind of stuff. Oh, this is terrific, guys! Thank you. People can should they, in fact they just can't, but they should follow Andy on Twitter because you are. Andy Bud, with two Ds. <laughs> That's true. People I know am. this. People know this stuff. And they should follow Cameron too, because he's Cameron Moll. With two L's. And there's me, at Malarkey. To ask questions and suggest topics, you can, because people do, message this show on Twitter, at unfinishedbz or bz, or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz.